Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. All right, got a really productive week this week because we got the uh, review of the master, which finally got done. Uh, that's been a long time waiting, but I, I was really happy about that format. Uh, and so, um, inspired by another YouTuber actually on that, and uh, put that together this week. And then also got a pretty decent podcast uh, that's been getting some very nice responses about the anti Scientology cult. And I uh, actually gave quite a bit of commentary in that podcast about what it was like, at least for me and other people I've seen, uh, in terms of the experience of coming out and, and hitting the real world versus the bubble world that we lived in. And this was applicable to not just uh, former Scientologists, but also former uh, members of any other destructive cult or group, not even religious in nature. So I hope you'll give that podcast a uh, check out. And I wanted to give a shout out to my Patreon supporters. I want to thank every one of them for their support because it's what keeps things going. But I also want to help uh, or thank, rather, those of you who have been uh, giving me one-offs or support through Google or whatever. So thank you again, all of you. And I specifically want to give a shout out this week to Terry Grant. Thank you for bumping up your support. To C. Walkowicz, thanks for signing on. And to Joyce Gray, thank you very much for uh, your very generous contribution through Patreon. Really, really appreciate it. All right, now let's get on with your questions. Matt, one book which I have found to be a great resource is The New Believers, subtitled Sex, Cults, and Alternative Religions by David V. Barrett. I wonder if you're familiar with it. He strives to be painstakingly fair-minded with all the organizations he writes about. Even so, the more wacky and dangerous ideas and practices of, for example, the flying saucer cults, the Nation of Islam, and of course, Scientology, come across loud and clear. Having learned so much from you about what really goes on, though, I do wonder about his use of a quote from Lorraine Bulger, who he says has reached OT8. Have you heard of her? He seems to suggest that because Hubbard's history of man does not have to be taken literally, then a more metaphorical approach to the OT materials, notably OT3, would also be perfectly acceptable. The quote from Bulger reads, Many religions have legends and scriptures which, taken out of context, can appear strange and misrepresentative. This puzzles me. I have detected no hint whatsoever of a move towards a more liberal reading of the core texts. In fact, top-level Scientologists aren't supposed to hint at their contents at all, right? Has the author perhaps got a little sidetracked here and managed to find some relatively easygoing independent Scientologists as sources? Maybe he is being a little too fair-minded. Your thoughts? Thanks, Matt. This is a really great question. I'm really glad you're bringing this up because I'm going to get to talk about some things I haven't particularly talked about before with any of this. Uh, I have not actually heard of The New Believers, and it's a book I'll definitely look into. Uh, such an array of, of material out there to get through. My, with all the suggestions I get, I've got a stack of books this high to get through. So, um, so I, I appreciate all the suggestions. <laughs> i got a lot of reading to do. Now, as far as this question, though, okay, this is a really great example of something I have talked about uh, before, which is an acceptable truth. 
Lorraine Bulger is an OT8, and according to what I found on Google, she is the executive director of the, I think, the London Foundation Church of Scientology, which means she's in charge of it, one of the ideal orgs on the evenings and weekend schedules. That's what the foundation is. So she's a very active Scientologist, not an independent at all. Uh, and so... Uh, see, the thing with acceptable truths is that, well, I actually looked up the policy on it, so let me actually read to you what um, L. Ron Hubbard had to say about it. Handling truth is a touchy business also. You don't have to tell everything you know. That would jam the comm line, too. Tell an acceptable truth. Agreement with one's message is what PR is seeking to achieve. Thus, the message must compare to the personal experience of the audience. So PR becomes the technique of communicating an acceptable truth and which will attain the desirable result. Okay? So what we've got here, and this is from uh, L. Ron Hubbard. I just read to you from a policy letter which is called The Missing Ingredient. He wrote that on 13 August 1970. So, uh, so in Scientology, you're going to have, you know, the reason why we talk about their deceptive practices and their lies is because you need a heads up on the fact that they're going to be, you know, throwing some curveballs at you. And the reason they think that it's okay to do that is because of what I just read to you. They're trying to produce a desirable result in the person that they're telling these lies to. So they think of them as acceptable truths rather than lies. And in this case with Lorraine, she is telling, you know, uh, the author of the book here, by uh, David Barrett, that, hey, you know, you know, metaphorical, sure, absolutely, of course, right? Uh, I don't know that she used those terms. The quote that you quoted her as here is specifically, as you said, Many religions have legends and scriptures which, taken out of context, can appear strange and misrepresentative. That's actually true. That's all by itself, that's a true statement. But if you then take that and apply it to Scientology, well, sure, you can take some of the things that, you know, L. Ron Hubbard said out of context, and it can look even stranger and more bizarre than it really was. But if you look at the whole context, it's pretty strange and bizarre all by itself, right? And, of course, that applies to the Xenu narrative and everything else. The confidential materials are absolutely expected to be believed and understood to be reality, an accurate reflection of objective reality, not a faith-based metaphysical uh, metaphor. That is not what the OT levels are. L. Ron Hubbard didn't write those with the idea that he was telling all Scientologists a nice story. That was not where his head was at. And it wouldn't make any sense at all to do the auditing procedure of OT3, which involves telepathically connecting with the, the body thetans that make up your body or glommed onto your body. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you know, look, check out South Park or look at my earlier videos about OT3 where I break it all down. These body thetans really exist, according to L. Ron Hubbard, in real time. They're right here, right now. They affect your thinking. They affect what you do. They affect what you believe. And so um, 
So you have to audit them away. You have to release them, which means you got to wake them up spiritually and get kind of them to snap too and go off and get their own body and go be an independent Thetan again. That's the whole point of OT3. Actually, it's the whole point of OT3, 4, 5, the training that you do on OT6, and then it's the whole point of OT7. All of those levels exist to handle, to detect and handle body thetans. That's it. That's what they're doing. They're addressing them from different aspects. There's different procedures that are used, but basically that's what's going on. So there is no way that those body thetans, if they are a reality, could be a reality unless Hubbard's uh, well, actually, there's lots of ways they could be a reality, but in Scientology, the way that they are explained is through the Xenu narrative. That's where all these body thetans came from. And in fact, Hubbard implies, or actually says in, in one place that I, I put in my book, that, uh, that body thetans were not a unique phenomena to the OT3 Xenu narrative, that, you know, when Lord Xenu blew everything up here on Earth, that wasn't the invention of body thetans. They had their, the phenomena had existed before in the universe, but it hadn't existed to such an extent and, you know, to the trillions and trillions that, that, that fell prey to the uh, you know, genocide that was the Xenu narrative. So, um, so that's supposed, that whole crazy story is the backstory explanation for why it is that you have to do the auditing procedure of OT3 and then address them with drugs on OT4. It's called the OT drug rundown, but it's really just handling more body thetans. OT5, which is a whole series of rundowns, uh, extensive amount of auditing that happens on OT5, but it's all addressing body thetans. And, of course, OT6 is a training level where you learn how to audit OT7, and then OT7 takes years and years to get through. And every single day, you are going in session three to five to six to ten times, however many you can stand doing, but it has to be a minimum of, you have to go in session at least once a day, every single day of the week, 24, you know, seven days a week. 365 days a year, you have to go in session. So unless you get extreme special dispensation from the case supervisor. So OT7 takes years to do, and you're going in session every single day doing it, addressing these body thetans. The only explanation Hubbard ever offered that I'm aware of for where all these body thetans came from is the Xenu genocide. So that's why you have to accept it as literal truth. That's why I say that, right? You're not going to get... Uh, There's a lot of people, apparently, I didn't do OT3 when I was in the church, but everybody from Leah to uh, Mary Kahn to other people who have spoken out about this, who have done these levels, have said that um, when you read the material and you're in the classroom, in in the OT3 classroom, and and you read it and you go, wow, that sounds pretty nuts, right? That sounds pretty crazy. They kind of expect a, a disbelieving, you know, uncertain, whoa, what, you know, kind of response. They're, that's not unusual. But the, re- but the reply, the pat reply for every one of them is go in session, do the procedure, watch the e-meter, you'll see. It, the meter will respond and you'll feel better. Just go, just trust us, just go do it, right? You don't have to believe all this uh, just because it's written. I mean, you're supposed to, of course, right? And some people do. But for those who don't, they say, look, just we, we get it. We understand. It's a little overwhelming. There's a lot to take in here. But 
trust us. Go in session and you'll see. It's totally, it totally is the way that, that Hubbard says it is. And apparently, with, you know, with the auditing procedure and the way the meter works, uh, there are the needle moves around in response to questions. And so they buy into that as the reason why it must be true because, hey, the meter responded, so it must be true. Uh, and, of course, their whole idea of how the e-meter works is totally wrong. So, you know, of course, they're going to they're, they're gonna assign false causation to the meter and to this whole story. So that's kind of the really big, long explanation for that. But I wanted to, uh, to, to break that down that way because I want to make sure that everybody gets that, that it's not metaphorical. It's not a nice, fanciful story. The, the, these things that Hubbard wrote, including the stuff that he wrote in History of Man, was all supposed to have been objective, literal truth. Now, there is a, something, there is a way that you can invalidate some of the material in History of Man. History of Man was a book that L. Ron Hubbard wrote in 1952. The Xenu narrative is 1967. There's a lot in History of Man and in the years in between History of Man and the Xenu thing that's pretty wild and crazy stuff. He, he writes about heaven. He writes about helotrobus implants. He writes about intergalactic civilizations and invader forces and, and lots and lots of, of things that happened to people in the distant far past that were unbelievably traumatizing and, uh, you know, like really bad stuff. And he just and he just made all this stuff up. I mean, it is some of the most fantastical stuff ever. It's really quite imaginative. Um, History of Man is basically where we kind of look and go, okay, that's pretty much where all this fanciful stuff started back in '52. He wrote in there about Piltdown Man, which was a famous archaeological hoax. But at the time that Hubbard was writing History of Man, everybody believed it. It was still true. It hadn't been debunked yet. So that's still in there. There's also a lot of stuff in there about evolution. But later, in the 1960s, Hubbard wrote or said in one of his lectures that the whole thing about evolution and creatures evolving and all of that was just another implant. And that we all believed it because we were implanted and hypnotized in the far distant past to believe it. That's what these implants are all about. So, you know, he sort of, when he, did, when he said that, in the 1960s, it kind of invalidated a lot of the material from 1952, where he talked quite a bit about cellular lines and bodies and, you know, and, and how you have a, uh, a family line and you have this thing called a genetic entity. And there's all this rigmarole, um, which would just take me hours to explain all of it. So I'm just saying that there's a lot of hash in here that Hubbard sort of you know, threw out the back window in years later. And so Scientologists are not all a bunch of idiots. They can see how this line of information developed over the years and changed and morphed in some ways. And this is one of the ways that it changed. So that's how they can get away with talking about acceptable, you know, like, like uh, Lorraine Bulger here saying, yeah, you can take some of this stuff out of context from history of man and go, wow, that sounds crazy. And yeah, it does sound crazy. But if you look at it in the bigger picture, it's even crazier. <laughs> you see what I, what I mean when I said at the very beginning here. So, so that's kind of a, a, a pretty full answer there. So no, I don't think that um, uh, Barrett got taken in by any independent Scientologist. That's not 
what happened here. This was clearly um, set up by the church for her to talk to him. Otherwise, there's no way that some OT8 would just randomly talk to a, a, an author of a book uh, where he's going to be writing about Scientology. They had to know about this. And they, you know, gave him, they fed him these, these lines to make it sound like Scientology was more normal and acceptable than it really is. So there you go. Pava. My question is about the communications course, as I have heard many ex-Scientologists saying that it is a great course and they are still grateful for it. So what is the communications course about? And is it highlighting an emotional vulnerability that makes people fall for Scientology? And Nia O'Nillicat. I have been reading about people who say the one thing they got something out of from Scientology is the communication course. It seems to be the course most people try out first. I found myself drawn to it for personal reasons, but I would not venture into a Scientology church to take the course. However, I found that they offer the course online for free, so I signed up with an email address I only use if I expect someone to send me junk mail. I had a problem right away with the first page, and that is what my question is about. The online course is in my own language, so I hope I translate the terms correctly. It is about duplication. According to the text, it is a vital part of communication. The definition is to make an exact copy of something. This sounds like their idea of the communication course is basically about how to get others to duplicate or copy what you tell them. Is this a first step into the indoctrination from their part to get people to accept duplicating or copying what they are told? Also, I object to lots of stuff they say about communication, like that it is a particle to move from one place to another. Surely I cannot be the only one objecting to stuff they are told, so how are people that object to things said handled in courses? Are they just told to be quiet and accept what is being said? Is it open for discussion, or are people in general just accepting things said in course? All right, the communications course. Let's go ahead and tackle this head on. Um, definitely some misconceptions here, so I'm going to try to help clear those up. Uh, first off, the online version of the communications course or any of those classes are all just the theory parts of the class. The communications course specifically is mostly practical drilling that you do with somebody else, exercises that you do. That's not really going to come across the same way in an online course, even if they tell you how to do it. It's really not the same thing as when you're in a Scientology classroom with a supervisor who's making sure you're doing it properly and uh, rigorously. They're really into you doing the, the communications drills very, very thoroughly. They want you on them for a good long chunk of time, which means 10 minutes is nothing. They want you on these drills for, you know, a good solid I'd say, let's just say hours, okay? Um, not every single drill takes hours, but there's, but some of them, they really, really want you digging in and, and getting your, you know, getting your teeth into it. So, so what are these drills? The communications class is almost entirely, or the communications course is almost entirely drills. Um, it is an introductory level course. It's something you can come in and do as your very first action. It's like, I don't know, I think it's like 50 or 100 bucks. And maybe 200 at this point, I don't know. But, um, but it's basically a series of, uh, I think it's 20 or 21, something like that, maybe 19, 20 drills that you do. And all of them have to do with, they're, they're, the, the, the communications course is a breakdown, a simplified version 
of the professional level training routines or TRs. There's TRs 0, 1, 2, 3, and 4. Okay, five basic TRs that uh, cover different aspects of communicating. The public level communications course takes those five drills and breaks them down into even smaller bite-sized chunks. And I'm not going to go through all of the drills here, but that's basically what the, what the basic communications course is. A lot of people in the big wide world have trouble communicating. Uh, we see this all the time. They stutter. They can't look at the person they're talking to. They're too shy to say anything in the first place. They can't even deal with looking at other people. Um, they have a problem answering questions. They have a problem answering statements or acknowledging things that are said to them so that the other person actually knows they got heard, right? There's nothing more frustrating than talking to somebody and they never say anything back. <laughs> they don't answer you. They don't reply. You know, you're like, after a while, you start, are you even hearing what I'm saying? Are you even listening to me, right? So acknowledgement actually serves a, an important function in, in human communication. Um, then there's TR3, which has to do with repeating things that, that, uh, that you need to say over and over again if the person didn't answer your question, for example. Uh, or, and then there's TR4, which has to do with when you're trying to get across one kind of communication and the person throws something at you that is out of the blue. It's unexpected. You didn't see it coming, right? Uh, you say, hey, you want to go to the movies and suddenly... You know, let's say you're, say you're, say you're, you know, you're getting, you're going to go out to the movies and you go to your wife and you go, hey, let's, let's, are you ready to get going? We're going to go. And she says, uh, I, I hate you. You're a scumbag, right? And you're like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> right? So how do you deal with that? You didn't see that coming. That's called an origination. They originated something to you and you're going to have to now deal with that. And if you, uh, you know, can't deal with it. If you go, well, rah, and storm off, well, that's not very good communication, right? Uh, so you got to have to learn how to deal with unexpected originations from other people. And in the middle of all this, and like I said, these are the main TRs. You break these down into, into subparts, and that's where you get your communications course. Um, it uses... Um, newspapers and magazines and stuff as, as uh, fodder for things to communicate so the person isn't necessarily struggling to make things up. And basically, it's two people sitting across from each other in chairs about three feet apart, and they look at each other. First, first, they just get used to looking at each other. And then they get used to looking at each other, but one of them is kind of trying to throw the other person off, and they progress through the drills. Somewhere along the line, you tend to run into what the person's main weakness is with communicating. Uh, not everybody has all these problems with communication, but everybody could do better at it. And communication is so vital to everything that we do in life, in dealing with other people, that, um, that people respond very readily to learning new skill, new, learning new bits and pieces that can help them with this. And it really does affect their life because if you can communicate effectively, which is not just a matter of finding the right words, but also a matter of like, looking at the person you're talking to, granting them some importance, uh, expecting them to grant you some importance, really making sure that, the, that the, it's flowing back and forth. Like if you pay attention to these kind of things, even just on a mechanical level, you actually do improve your relationships with other people. It, it's it's just a, it's just how it is. I don't know how else to describe it. It's not a panacea. It's not a it's not a universal solvent. It doesn't solve everything. Hubbard made that claim that communication is the universal solvent, but it does solve a lot of problems. You can get a long way with good communication, 
And this world is, uh, you know, tending to forget that a lot and all the the heat and passion of, of social media and bad communication skills. Because social media is just a, it, it's a barrier between you and somebody else communicating, right? And it's just text, for example. So you can't tell tone. You can't tell emotion. Sarcasm. I mean, there's so many things that are lost. So good, solid human communication can do a whole lot to improve people's lives. And... Uh, and that is why there's such a positive response to it when you point out little faults in people's ability or big faults in people's ability to deal with and, and, and communicate to others. Uh, so I think basically that's why it's such a powerful course for people and why they respond so readily to it and why they remember it fondly. I mean, I to this day, I still remember the drills I did and I thought they were good for me. I was a high school student. I was shy. I was introverted. I could not even get up the nerve to try to ask somebody else out for a date. Well, after I did the course, I finally worked up the nerve to do that, but I was a little bit, you know, <laughs> too much in people's faces. But that was probably more me than it was Scientology. Um, however, the thing about the communications course, not at the public level, but at the next level up, is you get into doing these drills for hours and hours and hours. I mean, sitting staring at somebody else in a chair for two hours straight, no blink, no fidget, no stumble, no mess around, no falling out of your chair, no going to sleep. You have to sit there solidly. Man, that is work. I mean work. And, uh, and it's trance-inducing because <laughs> getting through that, you go to places. It's, it's almost like a drug trip in some ways. It's pretty weird right? because, because it's inducing trance. So, um, so I'm, not, you know, I'm not saying that what I'm, what I'm trying to say here is they take it too far. It goes too far. That's, an, that's another example of dialing it up to 11, taking it to an extreme. You take a basically good thing and you morph it all out of proportion so that it becomes the, 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 the be-all, end-all of existence. And that's the problem with cults. It's not that everything they say and do is wrong. It's the exaggerated hyperbole of it all that, that makes it crazy and crazy-making. So, um, so I think that's what I can say about that. As far as the duplication point that you asked about... Duplication is part of Hubbard's formula for communication, okay? I am going to eventually get a whole video done on this subject because there's a chapter of the Scientology Handbook that covers this. But I'll say for now that the communication formula is cause-distance-effect. So there's somebody at the cause end originating a communication. It goes across a distance. It's perceived or, or, or talked about as a particle, even though nobody thinks there's a you know, little piece of particle coming out of your mouth. It's not that kind of particle. It's more like an energy particle or something, I guess you would say. But it goes, it flows from cause across a distance to effect. Effect is the person who's receiving the communication. Then um, part of this, okay, let's see if I can remember even half of this. So this cause-distance effect with intention, attention, duplication, and understanding. Okay, those are the component parts of communication. There's a whole bunch of other, there's a whole list of other stuff that goes along with this too. But the, what I just said is, the, is the, the fundamental parts of it. So duplication is a key part of it. You can't, according to Hubbard, and I'm not really so sure about this one way or the other, but here's what I'll tell you about it. Hubbard said that you first have to be able to duplicate something before you can actually fully understand it. 
I think that's an example of dialing it up to 11, but this is what, this is why it's part of the communication theory that you were reading about. Um, if you can't, if you cannot duplicate what somebody else is saying to you, then how would you understand what they're saying to you? Well, there's lots of ways because we, you know, conceptual understanding of things and context and, and emotion and tone. I mean, there's lots of ways that we communicate. Um, but Hubbard said that duplication was part of this. So that's why it's in there. I don't know. Uh, I've not done any formal communications training or classes or anything like that outside of what I learned in Scientology. So I can't yet speak critically about that uh, from, an, from an educated point of view. I can just say that I see holes in it too. Um, and I, that's why I'm going to do research on it eventually and get a whole video produced on that. So that's kind of everything I can say for now. I hope that uh, satisfies uh, your questions. Dick L., Commander USN, retired. I am a retired military intelligence officer, so thank goodness Scientology won't be asking me to join. Woo! However... I am working in Stuttgart, Germany for the U.S. military, and the local base newspaper has been running large ads from Scientology saying all the common things they say. Come, let us help you be a better person, free counseling, testing, etc. They provide the Stuttgart Scientology office contact info and address. It appears to me that there may have been a change in philosophy in Scientology, and they appear to be targeting U.S. military and family members. The Scientology organization is structured on the military model, and it may be appealing to some military members who have no knowledge of their practices, especially young enlisted personnel. This is a little frightening. If they are successful in recruiting someone senior, either enlisted or officer, there is a distinct possibility of coercion by that individual to have people under him or her join Scientology. I experienced this firsthand as a young LT. I was a reservist at the time, and my commanding officer was a commander. I was invited to his house for a dinner, which turned into a high-pressure event, complete with other salespersons for Amway at the time, many, many years ago. That was a difficult and awkward situation, and extracting myself without saying yes was not easy, but I did it. This could happen with Scientology and the senior-junior scenario. It would be completely illegal, and if reported, would have dire consequences for the senior, but if your goal is to clear the planet at all costs and you are that senior, it might be something you would try. I have seen other Scientology HQ in Germany, Berlin, Munich, and there is a van promoting Scientology that is parked in our neighborhood from time to time as advertising, I believe. Just wondered what you thought. Thanks, Dick. This is a great question. I'm really glad you're bringing all this to my attention. Um, okay, first off, no, there would not have been any change in policy with Scientology regards the military. Um, to be super, super clear, just because you're in the military doesn't mean you're not cool with being in Scientology. I knew a lot of people who were uh, active reservists or uh, had been enlisted or were even going into the military who were Scientologists. That's not the, the qualification point. The problem enters in when you start getting classified uh, clearances, when you start getting top secret clearance, classified clearance, you know, whatever the, all the levels are. I don't even pretend to know what they all are. But I know that if you get those levels of confidential access to information, that Hubbard was really super nervous about such people having access to Scientology's confidential levels. So they just kind of uh, filter people out 
at the lower levels who have had military intelligence clearances, um, or sorry, top secret clearances, because they because Hubbard was like, uh, 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 no, it's absolutely death on that. Um, I think part of the idea also, if you look back at uh, Science of Survival back from 1951, is that Hubbard posited this theory that um, that which he said was based on you know having audited preclears and learned this from them that uh, the military engaged in what he called pain drug hypnosis, uh, which was sort of Manchurian-style candidate, you know, Manchurian-candidate-style interrogation techniques or implanting hypnosis techniques using drugs and pain um, to induce uh, commands or thoughts in a person's head that they would then not, you know, later have access to or be aware of. Hubbard said Dianetics was the only thing that could solve this little dilemma. Well, okay. <laughs> um, based on that idea and the fact that the military kind of can't really be trusted anyway because it's really just an arm of our corrupt government and, you know, how corrupt governments are, according to L. Ron Hubbard, they are utterly, totally, and completely corrupt. So uh, can't have any of that getting anywhere near the, you know, solid, pristine Scientology. So that's your dividing line. So that being said, I'm sure they are very interested in servicemen, especially American servicemen over in foreign countries, uh, who they will be uh, disseminating to. And they are disseminating to. That's, uh, that's no surprise to me at all. Scientology tries to advertise when it can, when it has the money and the resources to do it. Um, and this is the local churches doing this, mind you. This is not necessarily from up above. Um, but these PR, these marketing or advertising campaigns uh, get funded from time to time, and so you see newspaper ads, magazine ads, articles, stuff like that. And that's what you are talking about having seen on the military base. I'm sure that they are all about getting those, you know, guys in the military who have downtime and money and not a lot to do with either one, and you know, and they want to get them in and get them into Scientology. So, so that, anyway, that's the effort that's being made there, and, um, and there you go. Susan Hepler. I'm sure when you first left the church, you had to learn how to communicate with the normal world. My question is, how often nowadays do you find yourself slipping into Scientology speak? Yeah, language, man. God, it has actually been one of the markers, the key markers for me in coming out of Scientology and through this whole recovery process I've talked so much about, the use of the language and the way I think has, has for me been the thing that has told me the most about my progress out of it because now I really don't think with those terms hardly at all. Um, they rarely come up unless I am specifically talking Scientologies or Scientology as a topic with somebody in which I then need to get back into. I have to sort of turn that part of my brain back on and, and kick it into gear. Um, and that's a good thing, okay? I'm not unhappy about that. I, this, is, this is good. This is progress. Um, because now I don't have to sit and filter through, oh, what's the English term for that again or concept or how do I think about that? Now I can think about things in a much broader sense than I used to be able to. And, um, and that has... That has opened up the thinking. Um, you know, the thing about language in these cults, and this is Scientology or any of these groups, but man, Scientology really went to town. Um, two dictionaries this thick, uh, an administrative bunch of words and the technical words, and they're just ugh, so much of it. And these 
concepts that they communicate or the words that the, the ideas that they communicate have to do with who we are, how we think, how people act. I mean, basic core fundamental stuff that you run into every single day with people you run across. So whether in or out of Scientology. So as a Scientologist, I, my worldview depended so much on my understanding of people based on these ideas, these words. I mean, there was things like a service facsimile. I'll just throw some out at you. The definitions of these things are not even really that important. It's just these were specific words or ideas that meant things that, that made the world look a very certain way to me. Um, overts and withholds, service facsimiles, ARC breaks, present time problems, um, implants, goals, problem, masses. I mean, the, all of these things are technical terms in Scientology that mean very specific things. And like a service facsimile, for example, it's, it's, a, it's an idea that you use to make yourself right and other people wrong and explain a disability that you have so that you can gain sympathy for that disability. Not just a physical disability, it could be a mental or emotional one too. Um, maybe you don't understand something and you're all peeved about it and so you're upset and you're trying to get across to another person that you just don't get this thing and you're, you know, it's like, and they're not really replying or responding the way you want them to. So then you start making them wrong and you're right and you, you know, and you want this sympathy, right? It's, it, there's a whole thing to this, but this is basically the idea. And I used to look at human behavior in these terms of like, oh, there's a person who is surfacking. They are using a service facsimile because they were in a tight spot or they didn't understand something or they were plagued by some problem or they were sick. This it could be this kind of a disability. This is how in Scientology people assign responsibility to a person who's the victim. I mean, this, here's this poor schlep who's sick and he can't go do his job because he's literally laid up in bed with a fever and some senior comes along. This happened in the Sea Org all the time. Some senior person comes along and says, you're just surfacking. Get out of bed. Stop being a bum. Let's go. We get to post. You got work to do. And the guy's like, I'm, you know, I'm sick. And he goes, no, you're just trying to get sympathy out of me for your disability. You kind of see how this works now, right? Like you're sitting there being sick on purpose in order to get my sympathy and get me to back off from you and let you have time off, you're going to be right. I'm wrong. No way, man. Uh-uh. I'm not going to let you do that. You're surfacking. You're, that's just a service facsimile. So that's kind of how it gets used, you see. And if you start looking at the world through that lens, this is how Scientologists get this unsympathetic bent or attitude towards people who have disabilities. They think those people are just surfacking. <laughs> See what I mean? So that's that's the way, that's how powerful language can be. I hope I got that across. That was a it's a difficult concept because there's a lot to the service facsimile. So I just kind of chose it off the top of my head there. But I think you guys might get the idea that these words are powerful and they shape the way we think and that shapes the way we act. And there you go. So uh, thanks for the question. Turd Ferguson. What is the earliest stage that one might encounter sec checking? What was the earliest instance that you're aware of and what brought it on? A somewhat related question, we have seen innumerable examples of Scientology violating priest-penitent privilege. 
This seems like a major legal exposure for them that could result in a cascade of fairly easable, easily winnable cases, as all that would be required would be to prove that anyone other than the parishioner's personal auditors had access to any confidential folder. Is the sole thing holding this back the fact that Scientology cries bigotry in order to prevent the folders from being entered into evidence, or is there more to it? All right, a little bit of a twofer here. So first off, um, sec checking can, can basically start pretty low on the bridge, but um, generally speaking, it's, it's, uh, it's possible that you could do the, the purification rundown, the objective processing, something called ARC straight wire, and then get onto the grades and do grade zero, grade one, and it's grade two which specifically addresses overts and withholds, sins, right, moral transgressions, it's at that level that you're going to hit your first sec check if you haven't yet hit one for some reason at a lower point. I was first sec check before I got to grade two because I was a staff member and I wanted to leave. I had been on staff in Santa Barbara for roughly a year or so, had been having a very rough time of it, and I said, okay, look, I, I, gotta, I, I gotta get out of this, I gotta, this isn't really working for me. And they said, okay, well, here's the, the, the steps you have to do, and the first step is getting a security check to make sure that, you know, it's not just your overts and withholds talking here. So I went in and I got this, you know, big sec check, and I unburdened myself of a lot of my crimes, and I actually did change my mind. That was a little weird. But I also was assisted by a lot of love bombing. <laughs> so, uh, so there you go, right? There's the, the power, like language, the power of confession is not to be underestimated. It is an extremely powerful motivating force. If you can get somebody to tell you their secrets, you are someone that they are going to hold in uh, as an authority figure, actually. And uh, they're going to grant you a lot of power. And it's something that is very easily abused, as we have seen by the Catholic Church. So, anyway, that's, uh, that's the answer to that question. Now, on the second part here, you talked about the PC folders and, and how we could get an easy legal win. No, that's not really that way, and here's why. First off, you sign legal documents when you first start getting auditing, saying that those preclear folders are not your property, and you never will have any claim to them of any kind. They are the sole... Uh, property and under the sole jurisdiction of the Church of Scientology, period, end of story. So that is you signing away any right to those documents or folders. The other thing is that it's not just the auditors who have access to the PC folders. Laura DiCrescenzo's case exposed just how many people have eyes on the inside of those confidential priest-penitent privilege files. I think she had something like 144 different people at some point who had, who had access to her folders. Auditors, case supervisors, uh, people over in the quality control area, I will, they're called cramming officers or the qualifications secretary. That's a whole other set of people who, could, who have to, according to the way they do their job, they have to go into those folders from time to time and, and check and make sure that the auditing is occurring standardly according to L. Ron Hubbard's instructions and correct the auditors or the case supervisors if they're making errors on the case. That's the whole purpose of the qualifications division. So they have full access to those folders. Executives come down and they get access to the folders from time to time. They're not necessarily supposed to, but they do. 
The director of processing has full access to the folders. There are folder administrators who put the folders in and out and take them around and, and, and route them from one place to another. They've got access to the folders and they have abused that access uh, or that privilege, I should say, by, you know, sometimes getting curious and opening them up and, whoa, wow, I didn't know that about this person. Oh, my God, they did that? I mean, you know, stuff comes up. Of course, auditors talk. So sometimes they, you know, say some pretty wild things. I heard stories uh, when I was overseeing auditing in Scientology that were definitely changed my view of, of just how messed up some people can be and the, the things people get up to in their private lives. It is, it's mind-numbing sometimes what you learn about people. Uh, so anyway, a lot of that information in those folders gets around. It gets in different places. Also, the ethics section has access to the folders or some of the contents of the folders because, for example, when you're getting a sec check, uh, if it's a certain kind of sec check, then knowledge reports will be written after each and every session, laying out in detail what you confess to. Those reports go down to the ethics officer, and then you go see the ethics officer, and he takes it up with you and says, okay, well, you stole this money from your mom, you know, you got to pay it back, and you have to sit there and work it out. Well, now they're the ones who have access to your confidential, quote-unquote, information. So a lot of people in Scientology organizations get access to those folders. And um, as far as violating that priest penitent privilege goes, well, you know, when it's their property and all these people in the organization get access to that property, then you really don't have the secrets you think you do. It's really not as confidential as you thought it was. And that's the real truth is it's really just more smoke and mirrors. There really isn't any confidentiality of your data. I've said before in the past that there should be, that there is, that there are these rules and stuff. But the truth is, after everything I just laid out here, I mean, there really isn't. And that's, that's the real truth of the matter. So it's just another lie Scientology is uh, sort of, you know, fawning off on, their, on, its, on its membership. So there you go. It is time for Flash Answers. D.A. In a recent interview, Tom Cruise said he loves sugar, but he never eats it. Do you believe anything that Tom Cruise says? Sure, I don't care whether Tom Cruise likes sugar or not. The truth of the matter is I don't listen to a whole lot that Tom Cruise says because I don't care what Tom Cruise says. <laughs> Italian Vapor. Do you think LRH's sci-fi writings influence Stephen King? I had never considered that idea. No, I don't. The only uh, work that Stephen King has ever given his opinion on was a book called Fear, which was not a science fiction novel. It was a horror book that Hubbard wrote back in his Pulp Fiction days. And author services sent it out to Stephen King and uh, asked him for commentary, and he gave it, and he liked the book. And I th as far as I know, that's the only thing of L. Ron Hubbard's that he has ever uh, commented on and probably has uh, ever read. Hashimoto's Homeboy. I know that Hubbard said that the people of the Galactic Confederacy looked a whole lot like the people of Earth during the 1950s. But did he ever describe the appearance of Xenu or Zemu? Did this intergalactic dictator look like a presidential JFK type or more like the alien creature depicted in South Park? I don't know that Hubbard ever described in the body of Scientology materials what Xenu looked like, but 
He, in the 1970s, wrote a screenplay called Revolt in the Stars, where he dramatized the whole Xenu narrative, and he did have Xenu. I don't know if he was called Xenu in that Revolt in the Stars. I'll have to look that up, because I've never actually read it, but I have read parts of it, and I know that uh, he describes him as a businessman. Business suit, uh, that's what he looked like. So, that's, uh, he's not the space alien that it was pictured on South Park. Okay, everybody, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to what I had to say. Uh, as always, if you are appreciative of what I'm doing here and you find it informative, educational, and entertaining, consider joining me on Patreon. That is uh, how I keep the lights on and a show going here. Thanks for coming around. I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.